Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Hello and welcome to episode two of season two of Anti-Folly. My name is Sam Kyington. I'm joined here today with Ethan Sampson. And uh, for this episode, it's been it's been a while. Uh, we last uploaded, I think, almost two months ago now. Um, yeah, we do a thing where we yeah. say that we're gonna like be better and like be diligent about the podcast, and then life happens. I think this time's so. for real, though. Um, for yeah, the, for sure, for sure, for no, sure. No, no, we have we have some really great episode ideas for the future, and uh, yeah, I'm just really hopeful for. I think getting back into the groove of things, you know, mm-hmm. it's interim right now, taking our J term courses at Bethel. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've got a whole semester left. It's going to be, it's going to be a great semester. A lot of great content coming out soon. Yeah. Speaking of content, I always forget to plug this at the beginning of episodes. If you would like to come on the podcast or you have questions, you hate what we're saying, whatever, you love what we're saying, love feedback, positive feedback as well, it's negative. Uh, go ahead and send us an email. It's uh, anti-folly, anti-follypodcast at gmail.com. There's no hyphen, straight lowercase, very simple. Um, and then you can check us out on our Instagram at anti-folly. So today, our episode, Ethan, I don't know, do you want to kind of go over it a little bit for me? Yeah, so I think, at least in my mind, these are basically some... Um, how do I say this? There, there's all kinds of, you know, thought and philosophy in the world, um, ways of seeing the world, ways of understanding. And we, yeah, in our classes have continued to rub shoulders with these two, namely being critical theory and historical criticism. Mm. Um, and so we thought we've been talking about that a lot and the impacts on those. So we're hoping to take some time to really kind of dive into what those are, what's the deal there, and some problems that we see with them, um, and humbly propose some solutions. Mm. Um, yeah, so want to spend some time contemplating them and go from there. So yeah. this is something that I think both of us have, like the historical criticism thing is way more kind of my thing mm-hmm. in the same way that I think you can speak a lot more on critical theory, but I think we'll be surprised how much there's overlap and connections yeah. with them. So, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's a, it's a buzzword right now, um, critical theory, uh, more so an example of its application, which the dreaded CRT, critical race theory, all that stuff, which everyone seems to have an opinion on, but I don't think anyone really knows what it is because there's so many different perspectives on what it is. But kind of just uh, a nice undergirding of what what we're trying to talk about in this episode. Uh, critical theory is a, it's a philosophical ideology that's descended from the Frankfurt School in Germany. It occurred during it really took off during the interwar period in Germany. So it's during the Weimar Republic, right between 
post World War One, pre World War Two, that whole area. Um, and yeah, it was put forward by a German idealist. Um, I think as critical theorists would be quick to point out for other ideologies, it was started by white European wealthy upper class men. Uh, and yeah, um, it's also mostly of neo-Marxist origin, according to Vox.com, which tends to use critical theory in their publications. So I would yeah, I would say sure. they probably come from a position of authority regarding the subject. Um, yeah, I read a book about it, Bethel. It's uh, Basics to the Frankfurt School, um, and it's written by a critical theorist, and he was basically talking about there's there's no, like, a lot of times we try to, like, hide that this is Marxist, if you talk to any critical theory, theorist, it is Marxist. It's sure. There's no ambiguity with it. It's objectively Marxist. So, I think that should be concerning, um, especially to Christians, just because Marxism is, in many ways, antithetical to what is ideally a Christian world. You know, I mean, we have some connections, obviously. I think Marxism and even critical theory, they, they seek to point out, to call out systems of oppression. You know, when you think of systems thought, that's what critical theory is seeking to assess. And that's like, as a Christian, heck yeah, you've got me on board. Where we kind of come into issues, at least I've seen in my courses, is what, how they go about getting to those conclusions. And probably most importantly, what their conclusions call an action to be. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's an, it's a, uh, this is something Sam's taking a eschatology class right now, mm-hmm. study of the end times. And that's something that I've heard that I think is really cool. Interesting or interesting way to put it is like the eschatology of Marxism. It's mm-hmm. revolution. It's these things that are, that's not as Christians, what our worldview is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's presenting a, a different worldview than, than how we understand the world and how we understand its end. Whereas Marx and those kind of following in his footsteps relatively consider the kind of the same, the same ordeal that the, you know, what is it? The bourgeoisie, like, you know, there's going to be this revolution. The proletariat rise up, the working people rise up against the oppressive people in the systems and create this sort of utopian ideal of a society where everyone shares equally in the wealth, which as Christians, we can kind of relate to aspects of that. Parts of. Parts of, but not fully, which is important. Well, yeah, and then obvious, um, we see this, and you can speak into this way more than me, but um, countries that try to do this do it by force. They become, they're authoritarian, and they try to get, they're trying to get there, and in the process, they kill millions of people, um, and there's just all kinds of other negative, negative impacts. Communist China. um mm-hmm. On and list on. goes on. So, and that that's more so looking at. Um, uh, I suppose Marx, I'm Mark, and you're not confusing it. I mean, it's all it's all connected. Um, sure. A, like a, a good Marxist would see communism as being what that solution sure. would lead to. Eventually, but um, there's variations in Marxist thought, and there's variations in communist thought as to what those implications uh, implementations look like. So. Yeah, I mean, as a Christian libertarian, I would strongly disagree with all of those solutions, but 
think it's important not to dismiss the whole ideology based off of that. I think where where it kind of becomes dismissible is in specifically how the way they seek to go about solving oppression is through a very materialistic means. Now, sure. I, I was reading something, and it was gotquestions.org, which sometimes pretty wacky answers, sometimes really based answers, a good starting point for research or just get a general idea. Basically, the Wikipedia of biblical topics is how I would put it. Um, they described, talking about Marxism versus Christianity, they said, Marxism is ultimately about material things. Christianity is ultimately about spiritual things. And I think that perfectly highlights kind of what we've talked about in other episodes when we're talking about like secular versus Christian worldviews, how we go about these things. It's, yeah, we, we agree with some of it, but at the end of the day, we, we see this change coming about through spiritual means. We see that being the safest way of securing yeah. all of these ends, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to draw that out and connect mm-hmm. that with historical criticism. Yeah. Because essentially historical criticism, um, I would, I would really place, um, this one specific person kind of at the beginning of historical criticism and the development of it to the present day. And that would be David Friedrich Strauss. He, um, lived in the 1800s and he essentially, he wrote this book called, um, this is abbreviated, but it's, uh, the quest for Jesus, something along those lines. And, uh, essentially the, the problems, the problem is he, along with many others, because of the enlightenment and the, the effects of the enlightenment, they decided that they were going to interpret scripture outside of the church, um, to be objective, to use reason only, to be scientific or however you want to say it about Mm -hmm. scripture. Um, the problem is, and I've written, written this in some of my papers that, that Strauss, he had all kinds of presuppositions. He didn't believe in miracles. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. Yikes. So I, I think you can imagine how he would, how he's going to think of Jesus. He's going to think of the New Testament. He's going to read that all very differently. And so when he writes a book, when he, when he in his works, does a lot of, um, has a very different perspective than Christians would, even on our scriptures. So I say that just to kind of to set up what historical criticism is generally. It's this very critical viewing. Well, it's 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 honestly thinking about it now. It's basically critical theory in some senses, up in in a general sense, applied to biblical interpretation. It's saying we need to be critical of what's going on here. You know, oh, well, the victors, to the victors go the spoils. So obviously these Christians are writing these things and et cetera, et cetera, those kinds of problems in their minds. Um, And it's it's along a kind of similar vein. Also, I think it is worth mentioning the connection I think that we initially had speaking about these two was that they both come very, um, very prominently out of Germany from white German men. And I think that's the, really the irony of both of these, because in, um, 
with historical criticism and, and just modern biblical interpretation today, they're branching out into all these, you know, post-colonial feminist criticism of scripture, Marxist criticism of scripture, all of those things. But it's funny because the roots of what they're doing and they're kind of going against those, those foundation, these foundational in quote, Mm -hmm. uh, things, but it it all stems from white German men, which is just, um, it's ironic. Yeah. It's very, it seems very ironic. Yeah. So trying to see, I, so what kind of got us started on this topic? Um, obviously we've talked about this for a long time, but I took a class last semester called educational equity, which surprisingly dealed very little with education or equity. That's another conversation. Um, <laughs> here at Bethel, um, it's required for all education majors. Um, it's also an elective, pretty popular elective as well. Uh, it's basically just critical theory 101 and applied to uh, education. And I've gotten a lot of arguments with my teacher and I pointed that out because one of our key textbooks, which I'm actually drawing from a lot in this episode, is it's written by the famous Oslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo, who famously wrote um, White Fragility. White, white Fragility, um, which also, ironically, two white European descended, uh, one's Canadian and one's American women, women who yeah. are like Ivy League educated. So, like, these are like creme de la crop privileged white women that are lecturing us and black people interestingly in some of these pages of this book on what is right and what is wrong and they are they're incorporating the frankfurt school their critical theory um so their book uh is everyone really equal second edition an introduction to key concepts in social justice education that's what i drew a lot from uh and yeah i kind of posed that question i'm like particularly we had a topic on on race and there's a point where Talked about like internalized racism, where they're you know silencing black people who have maybe more conservative opinions, and they're explaining this sort of divergence from the from what is what everyone what, what white liberals often think black people should think, which is progressively and in a democratic party platform like fashion. Black people that don't adhere to this, well, they can't possibly be you know truly black. They're adhere you know they're in a sense internally racist is what they would say and i found that so funny because the logic that they used to designate them as internally racist was first off them white european women who got their ideology from white german men so i'm just like sitting here i'm like yeah when you're talking about systems like these are people who benefited from the system and they're telling us that Everyone else, they couldn't possibly, you know, think for themselves. You know, they're so influenced by determinism and this idea that, you know, you can't possibly transgress against transgress against the oppressive rulers of our society and, and culture and how it oppresses others. And they're somehow the select enlightened among us. I can't believe I just said among us on the podcast. Um, among us who are, you know, gifted this ability to, you know, see the truth. Sure. But the only way they're able to see the truth is through those very systems of highly educated, wealthy, white Westerners. And yeah. Would you touch on the, um, the like cultural determination, uh, determinism and stuff? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's the exact word for that, but 
So I would frame it. I kind of came up with my own language for it. So determinism is in and of itself, if you look at the definition, I'm going to say it off of what I remember it. It's basically this idea that you are so heavily influenced by culture, by society at large, for your worldview, how you act in society, um, that it takes extreme forces for you to overcome that. So determinism itself, people like you and I, we would probably be determinists. We believe that society has a huge role in how people are shaped and how, what they believe and how they act, you know, corresponding to other people. Uh, what, what becomes the issue is critical theorists take that to an extreme. They, they actually argue against ideas like individualism or, you know, being able to climb out of social hierarchies and things like that which I do agree is very hard to do, but it happens. And ignoring that it happens, in my opinion, is a really dangerous thing because they instead put this idea together that isn't outrightly strict determinist, which is you can't possibly do anything, but it is that. So it, it it's really dangerous. I don't know if that kind of made sense. It's, it's really yeah. kind of painting this narrative where it's, you know, we're just so controlled by society so of course you think that you think that uh, you earned your money on your own. Well, of course you'd think that because you come from a white, you know, a white non-immigrant family who has all this privilege, and there's no way that you could possibly not think that because you're being supported by the oppressive systems, you know, stuff like that. Sure. So, and to disagree in any way is just to be internally to if to, you are, to internalize. It's really the the impact of a racist culture. Mm -hmm. internally and you're trying to you're trying it's it's frustrating because you try to have if you try to have a intellectual conversation about these things Mm -hmm. those sorts of perspectives of their philosophy are what's weaponized to silence people exactly um regardless of their skin color regardless of anything um which is unfortunate and i think this is another this is something in a different class that I learned about that I thought was really good when we talk about like a science or a view or something, these types of things that claim to be scientific and claim to be, this is how the world is. It's really dangerous when uh, everything that you possibly present, any sort of counter information or anything like that fits, it becomes fitted into the theory itself so it's like well what about you know oh all black people are like this because Mm -hmm. this is the racist culture that we're in you present them with an individual black individual who doesn't fit the mold that they're laying out and they say oh well this is because and then you know kind of turn things around and basically say well this person's internalized racism, yep. et cetera, et cetera, and fit it into their framework instead of reevaluating based on thing, you know, the present information. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, it's sad. Cause I mean, those situations should be celebrated too and yeah. miss out on doing that. Um, actually found the individualism specifically from the book. So D'Angelo and Oslam, they said that, um, Quote, individual, individualism is a storyline or narrative that creates, communicates, reproduces, and reinforces the concept that each of us is a unique individual and that our group memberships 
such as our race, class, or gender, are not important or relevant to our opportunities. Um, first off, that's just not what individualism is. But they're what they're putting on individualism is really just a strict determinist interpretation of what individualism individualism is. And in, individualism just says that you, as an individual, while you might be held to these different influences strongly, you are still an individual. But they're redefining it to fit their own narrative, which is what critical theorists do. Obviously, they're not the only ones that are victims to this, but their entire pseudoscience, which is what you were kind of alluding to, yeah. is built up upon that. They redefine things in accordance with what they believe will perpetuate their narrative. Um, yeah, they even did that about race. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, this was actually what was the most concerning part, and here it is. Quote, the term racism refers to this system of collective social and institutional white power and privilege. That is one aspect of their definition. Let me see if I can find the specific one. Uh, that might have been it, actually. That's all good. Yeah, so basically, racism is it's structural, in institutional. You know, it has to involve power is what is what is defined and instead of instead of you know defining racism through the lens of just being simply a you know discrimination based off of race they they implant a sub definition of racism it's like pre pre critical theory really taking off in terms of defining race in Honestly, you could term it as pre-George Floyd and post-George Floyd, if, if just to narrow it down. Pre-George Floyd, we had ideas that, you know, racism is discriminating, treating people different because of race. That can be individual. It could be me just being mean to someone who has a different skin color or whatever as an individual. Or it could be, you know, a police officer enforcing an unjust law that is targeted towards minority groups based off of race. Those things. And they were all together. And then you had subcategories like structural or institutional or systemic racism, all of those. Which clarify the specific type of racism. They, they clarify racism. But which all and, fit under yeah. the umbrella mm -hmm. of racism, exactly. which is more a much more broad definition, yep. like what you gave, which is you know prejudice towards a group yep. of people based on the color of their skin. Which like it was really helpful because, one, it, you could use racism— Instead of it being only specific one thing, it was a strong word that could be targeted towards all of the various ways that racism is enacted in society, which is really important because it, I believe in systemic racism, believe it or not. Like, I, that that's true. But when you redefined racism to only be systemic racism, instead of having the qualifier of systemic before it, you take away the nuance of how we're defining the words. And we're now we're now defining words under your set of rules, of the the set of the rules of the yeah. critical theorists. So then you have things like, you know, you can't be experiencing racism because you are part of the majority culture, which is problematic, especially from a Christian perspective. You know, and it's ironic because so like I would have conversations with my professor. Um. Honestly, I'm just going to name drop it, not to be disrespectful, but I feel like if I'm going to be referencing the class, I should be just straight up. Um, Dr. Lefebvre, uh, I had conversations with her where I was like, you know, I, was, I get 
why we want to focus on you know the systemic the power structure because that's where honestly the most damage comes from racism like that's really important to cover it but why do we need to redefine it and she would say because the old definition overly focused on individualism on individuals and, and she's like so we need to restructure it so it focuses not on individuals but on you know systems and how they're enacted so then i said back to her yeah, because we wouldn't want to narrow racism down to a singular enactment of racism. And she said, yes. Which is what you're doing. Which is exactly just what you're doing. about systematic and I, racism. And I would repeat yeah. it back. I was like, so why don't we just have it be the old way and have the subcategories? And there is no yeah. bell. There is, there is no like moment where it was like, okay, this, yeah, hold on, this doesn't make sense. And that's really the frustrating part is that critical theory points out a lot of really screwed up things in society. Like I was talking to my professor. She's like, she, she found me so funny because I practically agree with 99% of what's being taught. I just so fervently disagree with the parts that 1% that I disagree with, but that 1% is so important. Yeah. Well, let me say that, especially when we're dealing with definitions. Yeah. If you have a, some sort of view or philosophy or perspective that is purposefully creating like confusing definitions mm -hmm. i've been in classrooms when when professors uh present this definition of systematic racism you can't have a conversation about yeah. race like the real day-to-day -day racism that you see like the real racism between individuals like you can't talk about those types of things and how you're supposed to you know handle and act in those circumstances because when you say racism that's not, you know, you're not saying the right thing. So I've had a professor that referred to it as, um, as what we would think of as racism as like bigotry and did that deal. But it's just, I don't think it's very helpful to kind of bounce around with these definitions, especially if what you're doing is you're removing what, you know, like a qualifier yep. systematic from systematic racism and yeah. just calling it racism. That's just unhelpful and it's not going to. Um, it's really disingenuous. Yeah, it's distracting. Yeah. It's distracting because I think in a lot of ways, there's a lot of places, like you're saying, where we could be united on some of these things, mm -hmm. but instead there's those just sort of keep, you know, these philosophical problems. That was a problem with Strauss, with David yep. Strauss, with his book is um, even a book, one of the books that I read for class that spoke about him, talked about the issues that um, there's this guy... Hegel, who had a philosophy. Another German. Another German. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I'm not 100 percent sure. I'll fact check that too. But he um he had a philosophy that was super uh, popular uh during the day, which was essentially a a view of history and the way that history goes. And so it's set up in this sort of model uh, that I can just say really quick. Um which is uh a thesis antithesis synthesis so you have your original thing the thesis and then you have something that comes up against it the antithesis the opposite of that and then these things clash and then out of this grows a synthesis and so you have all these you know enlightenment biblical scholars writing like church history and doing these things assuming that that's correct assuming that that's the way history works assuming that Instead of, and they were just incorrect. They're incorrect about the the ways that they th um, thought of the 
the early church and the formation of the early church, things like this, you know, saying that Paul was Hellenistic and that Peter and his branch of Christianity was Jewish and they were clashing and eventually the Hellenistic Christianity won out, things like that that are just, they're just kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. And we would say that today because no one's a Hegelian. No one, you know, loves the philosophy of, of Hegel, like no one, like he's talked about in history of philosophy, you know, classes and things like that. Cause he's influential, but like no one's out here believing that stuff. And I think this is something we've said before on other episodes, this, this too shall pass. Like these things will pass away. Um, yeah. which is just worth remembering. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing new under the sun and you know, all the days of these things are numbered and mm-hmm. will surely, surely pass away. So, yeah. No. Yeah. Um, if I can just um, say something about, um, this is a book that uh, our, our pastor, Pastor Luke, gave me oh, that yeah, I've that been book, reading yeah. through um, called Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, Recovering the Genius of Pre-Modern Exegesis. And there's just one part from the introduction that I wanted to bring up because I think it really demonstrates this amazing book, phenomenal book. Um, my professor didn't really agree, <laughs> but I think that it's a phenomenal book. Um, I quoted it and he wasn't, he wasn't a fan, but here's one thing that like is so good. So just like you have, you know, these sort of kind of people movements coming out of like critical race theory and critical theory generally today, you also have this with um, historical criticism being, this is called uh, the SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature. And my professors talk about this. They'll, all of them go to this big conference and they present all these papers and all these things. And it's like, you know, the culmination of a year's work of academia and all this stuff. And I'm sure there are analogous things with critical theory. Mm-hmm. But they they talk to me and they say, they talk in class and they say, this is like, there's so many people doing all of this, you know, interesting work that's never been done. And um, they're presenting on so many different topics. Like there's so, so many wide, wide ranges of fields and all these things. But here's kind of the issues that the author of the book that our pastor gave me, Craig Carter, that he points out about the SBL. He talks about, he says four things about them. He says that it's plagued with chronic instability, that the kind of the foundations are kind of broken up and they disagree. They literally disagree about things, very simple things, scripture, about God, about all these different things that influence their, with their work. There's methodological fragmentation. So that gets worked out. That literally gets worked out and the people that are doing feminist criticism over here on one side aren't agreeing with the people doing textual criticism over here. Like all this work is disjointed. And then historical criticism was a, is coming out of the enlightenment, coming out of this reason focused work, you know, the one way that in which we should read the scriptures essentially. And all it's done is make more relativism. That's the third thing. It mm. increased, there's increasing relativism from historical criticism like it literally is just making things worse because people are taking this method and applying it every which way as we have like in a progressively more postmodern time where people are 
you know, kind of getting rid of the subjectivity of these things. Um, and then last, and I think this is the most sad, the impact of historical criticism and this sort of academia and stuff, it's making the Bible go silent in churches. Mm-hmm. Um, denominations that are that are really bought into this. I mean, this is something, you know, this is a few hundred years old, this historical criticism. They're increasingly liberal and they're increasingly lacking scripture, the, the word of God. And I think that's at least when I think of historical criticism, I just wanted to say all that because I think that's really, really the saddest part seeing that is understanding that I think this is also the same way with I would say this about both of these sort of philosophies, human philosophies, is that they're leading people away. They're leading people away in various ways. People feel like the church is not doing enough, so they deconstruct their faith, walk away from Christianity, and become activists for Black Lives Matter or whatever. Mm-hmm. People feel like their questions about scripture aren't being answered, and so they walk away from the faith um, or they join these churches that are increasingly um, lacking the word of God and reverence for it in any capacity. And, you know, eventually they, they stop being churches, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, you, I, I really like how you touched on all that. Obviously that's not really in my area of expertise. Granted, none of this is my expertise. I don't have a degree in anything. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of going back to it, I think, especially with the verse and that quotation from Got Questions, what's lacking in both of these ideologies that are very much interconnected is the Bible. And ultimately, it's it's God, it's Christ. It's the spiritual Versus mm-hmm. material. They, these are secular solutions that are being applied. And sometimes I think with genuine intentions. Like I think my professor is very, very genuine. And she wants to try to fix these things. But but you're not going to fix issues in society. In society can't talk. You're not going to fix issues in society that are examples of oppression and all these things by using secular means by means without the gospel you know you can try to christianize marxism as much as you want but at some point you just have to jump ship from marxism marxism itself is anti-religious marx hated religion he hated organized religion he hated material he hated private property hated all of these things that many cases are very important to Christian society and Christian identity. And I think we need to be honest with that. Um, I think in the past, especially from our, uh, from our more conservative Christian backgrounds, uh, we've been overly dismissive of critical theory. And I think it's, it has lessons for the church, but it has no place in the church. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like what you said there. I think, yeah, that's the that's the real the real kernel of it is is that they they 
dismiss the authority of mm-hmm. scripture. Yeah. And that's what I would argue with a historical criticism is the, the, the changing point from, you know, as mo- the book calls it pre-modern exegesis to modern exegesis mm-hmm. is the denial of the divine inspiration of scripture. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a helpful quote from the book. Um, Carter says, Interpretation of scripture cannot proceed with a focus on the human authors and their intentions alone. It must pay attention to what the divine author is saying through the human authors as well. And I think that's that's what's lacking. That's what's lacking is that you can only get so far when you think that these, these are things that contemporary scholars think that like they debate about if Paul had a consistent view of the law because when they read Galatians and they read Romans, they think that he's contradicting himself. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I didn't know that. That's, yeah. that's shocking. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying that's all of them, yeah. all those things. I'm not saying that we should flee academia or whatever, all that. But yeah, that one was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised by that. But I'll tell you the reason why is because these scholars aren't Christian. Mm-hmm. Why would, if you don't believe that, that the Bible is divinely inspired, why would you deal with it at all? They just, they, they read it and they say, this is an ancient text written by a bunch of people. If it's helpful for your faith community, great. But there's nothing inherently special about this book. And look at all the contradictions within it. And and they go and they, I mean, this is this is what I think, like what you were saying, like, yeah, I think your professor is being genuine. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I think you can say that. I think most people are. And I, yeah, I think that's, that's probably true. But I, I'll, I would say it this way. They're being blind to the truth. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, what you, what you're holding onto things and some of them, they're kernels of truth within them, but you're missing the bigger picture here. And to deny scripture and its authority in these things to seek after subpar solutions, that's that's no good at all. Mm-hmm. And there's something I was reading today that I thought was really, that's really kind of fitting to this um, author, J.I. Packer. He's talking about those who preach gospels that they're not, a, you know, they're preaching the gospel, but there's parts of it that don't, you know, they're, they're like half truths. And he says, um, this is obviously paraphrasing, but he essentially says, at some point when you're speaking about just half half truths, like it's no good anymore. Like it's not helpful at all. Like as good as as much as you can point out good things that are found within these, mm-hmm. they're plagued with problems. Yep. With lots of problems. And they're not there's no foundational authority. So it's weaponized in all kinds of different ways. So that's yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, so I would say um, this is kind of where we, we wanted to really go and to consider is, so then, you know, what is the solution? Yeah. And it is that we need to go back to the word. We need to understand scripture. We need to read it in light of itself and understand this is like what scripture is. And just read, just like having been reading, like, this is what the Puritans and all of these faithful Christians before us believed that. God has divinely disclosed himself to us, that he's mm-hmm. personally, 
He's giving personal revelation about who he is and what kind of God that he is to us in the scriptures. And he's not going to, he's the kind of God that's not going to fail in showing this, these, and we're not going to find contradictions in the scriptures. If you think that there's contradictions in the scriptures, you need to read them more. (laughs) And, and I think that's, I mean, I just think that that's glorious. And I think we see the way, the ways that these different philosophies will try to mock and ridicule Christians and their kind of perspectives, but also, um, yeah, for these things to be in Christ. I mean, it's like, oh, you're so close. Yeah. If you're Marxist, like you're so close, you you understand, like yeah. you, there are things that you get, there's things that you, you know, that it's the reason why it's attractive is its similarity with the truth, the way that, that God's world really is. Mm-hmm. People see things, people see that at some point, those that are oppressors are going to be brought low and are going mm-hmm. to be judged. And those who are poor, you know, poor in spirit, poor, they're, that they're going to be lifted up, that we see, you know, we see those types of things. And Jesus talks about these things. And when he comes back in judgment, yeah, you know, but that's not what they believe is going to happen. They believe that they yeah. themselves can achieve this, you know, through a revolution and through all this stuff. And, and that that and is a key And part. they're mistaken, you yeah. know. But yeah, exactly. That man thinks that they can achieve this, yep. and not and they're misunderstanding that no, it is God that's achieving. It's these God things. that's ultimately going to control that. Yeah, I mean, I like how you talked about specifically the the kernels. Um. I don't know if you've said that, but that's what I took from it. It's like how there's those kernels of critical theory, even of Marxism and the like, that are good, but that doesn't make Marxism critical theory good. Yeah. I would honestly argue that, you know, we, we talk, I've talked to Pastor Luke, we talk in church a lot about how there are these things in secular society that are good, and those things point to Christ. And I used to think of it specifically from that perspective, you know, this points to Christ. But the more I think about it, it doesn't just point to Christ. It is Christ. Like what is good comes from God. All good things come from God. And, you know, I was talking to my professor. I was like, why why are we only using critical theory resources for our class? And she, she told me because that's the only place where I could find a theory that, you know, looks at, approaches, and deals with systems of oppression. My first reaction was, well, that's ridiculous because there are tons of other theories that deal with this. But also, those good things of critical theory that point towards that, all of that to me reveals that it's the Bible, it's God that reveals this these oppressions in society and ultimately how we can overcome them with him. But if we mm-hmm. don't have him in mind, we're going to fail and crumble. And that's yeah. the important part. Yeah, that reminded me of um, Paul in Acts in Acts uh, 17. Um, this is funny enough. We were just talking about Mars Hill. This is where Mars Hill comes yeah. from, I believe. But Paul is speaking with these philosophers, these human philosophers. And I think this might tie, really tie things together here. He's speaking with philosophers and they have all of these temples and things set up to worship these gods. 
but they also have, um, Paul, Paul says it, he says, uh, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And Paul says to them, uh, this is the second half of verse 23. Uh, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Mm. Uh, sorry, I want to keep going here. Yeah. Uh, yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your poets have said for we are indeed his offspring man nice. he says and th this is what i think we need to do we need to s we shouldn't just and i think this is something that those of us who are more um conservative minded politically conservative mm -hmm. need to be really mindful of and what's really dangerous is to just say, I don't like part, you know, this, I don't like this. I'm just going to mm -hmm. say you are wrong and I'm going to ridicule you instead of saying, look, here's where I think you're, you know, you're generally wrong and you need to take stands on those things, obviously. But at the same time, you need to point them to this unknown God to which they think that they serve. Mm -hmm. You know, they think that they're, they're people that are basically just worshiping justice Literally. today yeah and we need to say look you shouldn't work you know justice is not a thing to be worshiped but there is one in whom all justice is found mm. and you should worship him you should follow him and he gives life to i mean just the way that paul brings us out you know this you know this what therefore you worship is unknown this i proclaim to you you know this god that made the world that does not dwell in a temple is not you know served by human hands that gives life to everything that exists it's just like oh man like pointing people to that i think that's so good. really really important really really important yeah yeah so and i think i guess i i just kind of want to kind of wrap up with just a thought here and I mean this is considering these things and kind of working through this has kind of made me kind of <laughs> feel a little opinionated so sorry if I'm speaking <laughs> too much about this stuff but this is good I, I, I always worry that it's it's me that's being too opinionated so if it's no, you for once good, if, it's, <laughs> if it's you for once it's actually really good <laughs> this is like like we like the verse was saying, you know, like mm -hmm. we need to be really careful to not succumb to these philo these human philosophies and to be really um, careful in examining them, examining them in the light of Christ. And I think that, trying to find my words here, I think that what this should really cause us to conclude is... I think we should look at all of this as Christians and we should see the way that 
God's word throughout history has been continually assaulted by human philosophies. Mm. And I think that today we have a really weak view of what scripture is. And it's sad. It's sad to sit around in here in my classes and just hear some of this stuff. It's really sad. Um, That's the only words. Like Mm -hmm. it makes me think about when Paul says in Philippians, for I've said before, and I will say again, even with tears, many will live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Like these people are just like like taking a dump on scripture. Mm -hmm. They're mocking it, ridiculing it as this ancient, meaningless document. That's how it feels. And that's what I really think is happening. And even in these other spheres, in education and all of these other Mm. things, scripture isn't good enough for them. They need something else. They need to subvert what the, you know, the foundational principle is. It can't be scripture. It can't be God's word. It needs to be something else. And so we look for these man-made things that we think will do better than the scripture. But the scripture is supreme in all this. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. But uh, I mean, obviously, ultimately, Christ will reign, Mm. is in control of all of these things. This only continues to demonstrate the need for his word. And amen. Yeah, I could could keep going. I could keep going. Uh, Do you have any other thoughts, bro? Yeah, I mean, kind of touched on this already, but critical theory and historical criticism those are so, so, so pervasive in the curriculum, not just in the United States, I would argue globally. It's, you don't even realize it anymore. You know, you just walk into a place, it's diversity inclusion officer. And then you walk into a place and they're like, oh, just in case we offend anyone, you know, we want to acknowledge the land that we're on right now. We want to acknowledge the diverging opinions on this various thing. It's like some of those things are good, right? But like we've been talking about, their roots are bad and also their implications are bad. Yeah. So what better thing should we do than to turn to the word, to turn to God and to take those nuggets, those kernels of truth within all of these ideologies and recognize that in him, not the ideology. Because we recognize in the, those things in the ideology, we're just going to crumble. So really just, it needs to return back to God and trusting in him, viewing the Bible, not as this sort of thing that upholds oppressors, but something that also tears oppressors down, recognizing how Christ ultimately will do those things and how as Christians, we shouldn't seek to uphold those things, but we should oppose them. You know, obviously there's disagreements for how you oppose them, but oppose them we should. Um, Yeah, I hope that we spiked your interest i hope that this was helpful if it wasn't whatever you know but let us know let us know let us know if you have different thoughts yeah thanks for listening this has been episode two season two of antifoli